Hello, everyone. Welcome to Paperback Behavior. I am one of your hosts, Shane. I'm one of your hosts, Patrick. And we are continuing in our tradition of uh, seasons and for season three, because we've been talking about leadership and supervision and all that stuff. We thought it would be cool to dive into a special edition of Behavior Analysis and Practice, one of our flagship journals right now, uh, and talk about the specific issue, volume nine, issue four from December 2016. That is a special edition on supervision. I, I don't know how you feel about special edition journals. Yeah. I really enjoy them, though. Um, I have a lot of fun with them because I like I like having a theme. I like because I, I do enjoy reading journals and I like reading kind of like the different things that come out. But I do really enjoy reading a journal that's like this is all about this particular topic. If you want to know about this, here's the one that you go to and it gives you some really cool insight or updates on this stuff. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I definitely agree. I like because I think a lot of times when you get the if you pull an article just from, you know, just the one off in, in a different volume, like you just get that perspective or that study or whatever. And a lot of a lot of this one, at least talking about supervision, there's there's a lot of different, you know, it's, it, the practical stuff, conceptual stuff. It's not a ton of like the actual research behind it. So it's cool to get the different opinions. It's cool mm-hmm. to read something and then, and then see something after that kind of gives a different spin on it, or you can build on something that you previously read, like, you know, five minutes earlier. So yeah, I love the, I love the special editions because they allow you to do that. I find for myself, when I just pull out those like single one, one-off articles, it's a little bit, you get that information, like in that specific context, it's a little harder to get a lot more and kind of contextualize it that way. So I love when you get a, a lot of information and can kind of sift through it all at once. Yeah. And I feel like more recently, um, I've seen a lot of the journals do uh, special editions. They've done, I want to say one of them just did one on direct instruction. One of them do, did one mm-hmm. on precision teaching. Um, I want to say that it may, it might be, I feel like it's perspectives on behavioral science did one on the quantitative analysis of behavioral uh, behavior analysis or something like that. And I'm yeah, just kind of like, I don't right. understand any of that. Uh, <laughs> so, so it, it, it's cool. Or, or like, um, there was one that was specifically on Murray Sidman, uh, and yeah. Murray Sidman's work. And that yeah. was really cool. So, so the journals kind of have the ability to do that. The editors can do that. And it really depends on the editor and all that. So at the time, um, I'm, I'm not quite sure who the editor was at the time. And I have this, I have this journal laying around somewhere, so it's not like I couldn't go look it up, but I do think it is uh, really cool to see this one on supervision because at the time this came out, and I would make an argument since then, there's not a lot of research on supervision. And I see research specifically as far as experiments go. I think that there are plenty of theoretical things. There are plenty of kind of discussing, and that's what you'll see in a lot of supervision, right? Unless it's BST, uh, <laughs> which is like, there's plenty of BST <laughs> research. Um, you, unless it's BST, you're not going to find a lot of experiments. And so, um, and there's some stuff on leadership and all that, but most of it's theoretical. But what I really like about this is that the articles that we're going to talk about, and we're going to take articles one by one, item by item, line by line. Uh, what I really like about this is that it feels comprehensive. Like I, I go into this, I'm like, it feels like it encompasses all the different elements from a theoretical standpoint, but it gives you stuff that's practical. And I always kind of hear Matt Broadhead in the back of my head saying, people love practicality. People love yeah. things that you can do. And so, uh, so I'm really excited to kind of dive into this with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. I, yeah. This is exciting to go through and fun. Cause you're, you're right. They talk about group supervision. They talk about barriers. There's some ethics in there. There's, there's some unique ways to kind of address um, it to do supervision across different settings. So I, it was, it, it's cool to really go into all those different areas. Um, 
because like you said, you just don't necessarily get all that when you go off of just that one, you know, one article at a time or, or something like that. So yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, so then with that being said, why don't we just go through this one article at a time? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> so, uh, so it, like we did before in the, in the journal, in the journal episode on behavioral and social issues, uh, we have divided this in half essentially. Uh, and we're going to take this, um, as we go. So each, each of us has taken an article. We're going to go back and forth. We're going to discuss the merits of the article, what we found useful about it, um, and, and, and share some of the basic information from those. So the first article is refining supervisory practices in the field of behavior analysis, introduction to the special section on supervision by LeBlanc and Luiselli. So Patrick, that was yours. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, this was, we we're kind of talking about this and, and how we wanted to go into this one, because this is just that introduction to the, the special section. It doesn't really get into a ton of, of, you know, its own stuff. It kind of summarizes some of the, you know, what's, what's about to come. And so for, for me, I, I, I do like that just in general. I like having that, that kind of short brief article that in, introduces it so you can go through it quickly. And, you know, rather than having to go through the abstracts of different articles, you can kind of sift through something like this and really see which ones um, apply and which ones make the most sense. Um, but I just, I, I, I thought that this, this for me was, was, was the, you know, it's the article that kind of describes this, this entire, you know, this entire volume and kind of why they did this. And they talk about, you know, <laughs> they talk about, really that, you know, we, we have those expectations of the, of, you know, the task list, we have the expectations of the eight hour uh, supervision that I think, and they talk about this as well. That's kind of that, like you do that eight hour supervision and now you can supervise and, and technically, <laughs> yeah. like, technically, yes. Right. Outside of like, there, there's the consulting supervisor now that you have with the first year and, and stuff like that, but that, that came out after this. Um, but this, this article really kind of started to lay that groundwork of like, hey, here's your expectations. Here's what is necessary as those basic core skills for supervision, the eight hour thing. Uh, but that's just the start of it. There's a lot more to it. And, and this, this article really started to kind of lay that groundwork of like, OK, hey, yeah, I have I have that initial eight hour framework. And oh, crap, there's a lot more that I can that <laughs> I can do. To me, it just to me, it, it, it had that same connection of the task list being our core set of competencies just for a BCBA, right? Like that's the stuff that you learn in grad school. It's the stuff that you are tested on. And there's a lot more to it than that. And same with the eight hour supervision, like that's your core set of skills that you need to be a supervisor, but there is so much more that comes along with that. And I think that's what this article was really starting to lay the groundwork on. Yeah. And, and I, and I really love, cause I feel like it is a really great introduction to this and, and I, and I think that's completely fair. Right. So, so there's so many people and I've seen so many people that do this. Uh, and I feel like it's true, not just for supervision, but just kind of in general where people will be like, I did this thing. Now I'm able to go do this competently. And it's like, that's the opposite of true. Uh, this should have, <laughs> what this should have done is told you how little you do know about this and that you are certainly not ready to do that. Uh, I have a supervisee right now. That's like, I want to go and I want to open my own clinic right when I get certified. I'm like, you should not do that. You should go get experience at other places and then figure out what you like and what you don't like. So spend some time researching and then realize you're going to be doing a lot of work to build up this clinic. Yeah. So, so uh, I, always like, uh, I always like these articles to kind of orient you to what you're about to get into. And then, uh, and then it just dives right in. So that's, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Well, and, and I like the, you know, when you're talking about somebody opening a clinic, to me, it also, it, that takes a, a different spin on it too, because, you know, we're talking about, 
obviously, you know, competence in what we've done and, and whether you've done it, you know, effectively in the past and things like that. But there's also pieces of this that are outside of our of our kind of standard realm. We're talking business practices as well, right? You're talking more of a an OBM lens and 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 you know business development and, and you know, finances and stuff like that, that obviously are not necessarily part of our task list, but if we are going to go that route and, and start to do some of those other things, uh, we need to have an understanding of those things as well. So again, that, that core like supervision is there, but there's a lot more. And I think that, I think that we are, I think that this is a great way for us to start to self-reflect and say, okay, yeah, there's, what do we really need to know to be able to do what we want to do and do it well? Yeah, 100%. So uh, one thing I want to orient the listeners to on this is that a lot of the uh, articles are going to be authored by the same people or uh, a similar, uh, some kind of uh, various arrangements of these folks. You're going to see a lot of tire sellers, which is awesome. Amber Valentino, which is awesome. Linda LeBlanc, which is awesome. And James Luiselli, which is awesome. So these four (laughs) people are going to be kind of, you're going to see them a lot as we go. Um, and, and so I think that's important though, because at the time that this was written, um, Tyra Sellers was the ethics director at the board, or yeah. she was getting ready to be. Um, so, so this was kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, she, she let, she was actually the director of ethics for some time and helped shape like the new code and do mm-hmm. some really cool things. And so, and obviously Linda LeBlanc has done some really amazing things and, 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 you know, we are getting ready to lead up to um, season four of the, the, of paperback behavior, which we are talking about the LeBlanc sellers and Ali Rosales book. That is the mentor book. So we are, so, so these folks are, are deeply ingrained in supervision. And I, and I think that it's kind of, I think it's cool to see. And I think it's important to note that you're going to see a lot of, a lot of articles from these folks in this discussion. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting because I, I I totally agree with you 100%. And I also think that it's interesting on the other side of that, because like you were talking about, you know, some of the research and, and not as much research on supervision and things like that. It's it's really cool to see those leaders and behavior analysis talk about supervision, really lay out some of these things. But it's also kind of on the other side, interesting because it, it to me, and, and I don't know if this is correct or not, it's just my perspective, but it also kind of shows that well, why aren't more people also involved? Like, why is it just that core group of folks? And it's not taking anything away from them, but it kind of makes me wonder like, well, is, are we kind of seeing a disservice where maybe there's a lot of others in the field that maybe don't have that same level of training or experience? And that's, that's a concern. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would liken it to, um, you know, I think I think that when there is not a big body of research, I think it just so happens that somebody might open a line of research. And I think mm. that's kind of what happens is that somebody's like, I am really interested in this. Nobody else is doing it. So I'm going to write the research on this and hopefully we'll open up questions uh, and, and, and kind of if I put the questions out there and I put the limitations out there, then that can happen. Like I think of that was self-care. Right. So the self-care yeah. research is not it was non-existent before 2018 <laughs> uh, in, in behavior analysis, truly. Uh, yeah. And then so so there are very few people who were writing about that and working on it. I mean, I, I hate, I'm not, I'm going to say that I was one of them, but I haven't done nearly as much work as people like Julie Slowiak has, mm-hmm. where they have put together a lot of really cool self-care research and it's grown since then. Um, not by much. I mean, people are talking about burnout and stuff like that, but that body of research didn't exist before. Yeah. And I would make the argument that maybe supervision, I feel like leadership did, and I feel like performance management did, and that's, I feel like a different aspect of 
yeah uh, what supervision is right so this is specifically yeah. talking about supervision towards certification and that's the first article right the first article that that, that i'm going to cover is recommended practices for individual supervision of aspiring behavior analysts mm -hmm. so this is training people to be behavior analysts not necessarily supervising a team or managing a team right Fair and so enough. i feel like that's probably where the distinction is because i feel like there's a lot of research in obm oh yeah Oh like yeah, that. there's plenty of that. Yeah, um, and and I mean, and I think that's kind of the difference. I would say so. Maybe that's maybe that's what it is. That's that's kind of what I see, though. That's how I would interpret the that's difference there. Okay, but, cool. I like it. So let's talk about this first article. So Sellers, Valentino, and LeBlanc. Um, I have had the pleasure of meeting all of them, and they are all wonderful, wonderful humans. Um, and so. I, I recommend just reach out to them if you ever want to talk to them because they are the nicest people. Um, so this article is not an experiment. What this is, is just some just guiding principles, essentially. Here, they're like, they give you four or five things that you can do as somebody who is supervising somebody towards certification. And so they give these, rec they call them recommended practice guidelines. So the first one is to establish an effective supervisor-supervisee relationship makes sense and that is very consistent with the book that we're reading from them mm -hmm. is relationship first and then all the other things come along and Absolutely. i really really love that and so underneath that they talk about getting contracts and setting clear expectations and receiving and accepting feedback all stuff that we will talk about and have talked about as far as kind of like leadership stuff so mm -hmm. i won't rehash that um, and then committing to a positive relationship, knowing that you are working towards something that's really cool. The second guideline is establishing a plan for structured supervision content and confidence evaluation. If you've ever seen uh, Dr. Sellers talk about anything on supervision, it is structured. It's clear. I mean, it's it, like the, the notes that she has, all the things that she provides. And this will kind of be a thing that carries on in some of the other articles too, this, mm -hmm. idea, this idea of structure, which I really like. Mm -hmm. The third guiding principle is evaluate the effects of supervision. Ethically, we're responsible for doing that anyway. Um, and that's good instructional design stuff, but that's the third principle. And I really like that. Incorporate ethics, love that, and professional development into supervision. So you're always talking about ethics. You're always ensuring that person is contacting some really great uh, resources and some great training. Uh, and there's a really cool table here that gives uh, not only the guidelines, but resources and ideas. So that's kind of a fun thing. So it gives you like different things that you can do that instead of just being like, yeah, just do this. It's like, hey, you should do this. Here are different ways to do this. Yep. Um, and then the fifth guideline is continuing the professional relationship post-certification. I really like that. That doesn't always happen. Uh, my experience is that I have some supervisees that I finished supervision and they never wanted to talk to me again. I don't know if it's my fault or theirs or just we got busy. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but I do like that idea of continuing because it moves from like a supervisor supervisee relationship to more of a mentorship or yeah. a peer relationship. And I do really enjoy that. So, um, so that's where this starts. This starts by saying, Hey, you should probably do these things and make these your values as a supervisor. And I really, really enjoy that. Yeah. I love that. Cause, and I love that it, it, it really starts to, it does tie into some of those core, you know, responsibilities that we have as a supervisor and comes from that eight hour curriculum and things like that. But it all, it really quickly takes you, takes you beyond that. And mm -hmm. for me, it, for me, and, and we've been talking about this a lot. And, and like you said, with the, the, um, with the other seasons that we're recording right now in terms of relationships and, and, and mentorship, but that, that, that mentorship thing, I, I keep going back to, I really love that idea of mentorship, especially for, especially post-certification. And, you know, whether that is with, with the same person that was the supervisor, whether it's with somebody else, 
Um, I just love that concept because I think that really emphasizes not just the continuing education in supervision, because we know we have to get a certain number of CEUs and all that stuff, and that's just kind of logistics, but I love the fact that it, they, they emphasize that discussion of ongoing growth, collaboration with other peers, recognizing your own deficits in skill, your own scope of competence, how to kind of build that up. So I, I love that. I love that that's an emphasis across the board. And I know that's just a piece of that article, but that, mm -hmm. that concept for me is really starting to hit home because we're seeing it kind of embedded in a lot of different things that we do. And I think it just starts to show the, the value of that. And I think this is some of the earlier discussions on that usefulness. So it's interesting to see kind of where that's going. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. It's one of my favorite articles on supervision. So yeah, yeah, I'm with you. All right. We're moving. You ready to move? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, let's do we're it. Moving. All right. So we're moving on to the next one. So uh, one of the articles I reviewed was towards a competency-based, ethical, and socially valid approach to the supervision of applied behavior analytic trainees. Uh, it was by Laura Turner, Aaron Fisher, and James Lewis-Selly. Uh, so, you know, this, again, was a great read for me. Um, I love the fact that they, they really... What they did was present presented what they're calling just a practice model for supervision. And as Shane, you kind of already alluded to in, in your article, we're going to see a lot of those through lines uh, throughout all of these different articles. So, yeah. um, you know, they emphasize setting the relationship or sorry, setting the occasion for a collaborative and ethical relationships. So again, we're focused on relationships. We're focusing on that working, you know, working together. Uh, something's going on in my house. I don't know what that is. <laughs> uh, talking about defining the relationship, the performance expectations, and really what they do is in these individual sections, they start to break that down a little bit more. So what does that relationship really look like? Who is responsible for what? Um, and who is responsible for, you know, certain outcomes? Um, you know, they go into evaluation of performance expectations. They talk about confidentiality and what that should look like in terms of the supervisory relationship. They also talk about remote supervision. And this is one of the only articles that I can remember here that really goes into that. Um, they don't go into that in a ton of in a ton of depth, but they do talk about some of the technical difficulties with remote supervision, which I think mm -hmm. was really interesting, uh, especially now that we've had the last, you know, two, three years to kind of reflect on. And, and I know for myself, I've, during, you know, COVID and doing some of those remote supervision opportunities, I know there were a lot of opportunities, a lot of times where, you know, we, we just had technical issues and my staff wasn't able to kind of, uh, you know, keep their, um, you know, move throughout the, the home while they had a, a camera or something like that. And so those are, those are some barriers that I think we're facing more and more. Um, but I like the fact that they talk about that and just what that, what the implications are of that, that allows us to do supervision remotely and maybe do it in, in places and with folks that we might not normally be able to do it with. Um, but just, just doing that does not necessarily mean that the quality is there. Right. And sure. so being remote in terms of supervision does require a different amount of a different level of skills. Um, so, you know, they go into a, a couple of these different areas in terms of how to develop case conceptualization, decision-making repertoires, uh, considerations and evaluations. But the big thing that they kind of wind down with um, for me was really talking about the assessment of trainee skills mm -hmm. and a baseline assessment of trainee skills, especially when it comes to evaluating your outcomes of supervision. And we know that's that's part of the code, that's part of our curriculum, things like that. But they really, they really go into that depth of 
our job as a supervisor is to identify where what, what skills are and are not present and to develop those skills in our, our supervisees' repertoires. And we only can know that if we identify what those baseline levels are and then evaluate at the end. So I love that they really put that emphasis on that data-driven approach to supervision to make sure that your supervisees are learning what they should be learning, just like we do with our yeah, clients. Yeah, 100%. I love that. And uh, and so, I mean, I, th- I think that's, and I, I think that um, aligns really well with kind of like the flow of the, the special edition, which is like, you know, here are some things that you should be doing versus assessment and making sure that you know how to assess and all that stuff, right? So like that feels really good mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah, I cool. agree. Yeah. All right. Well, the next article uh, is one of my favorites ever. Uh, I I make this a required reading for my supervisees, and it's Taking Full Responsibility, The Ethics of Supervision and Behavior Analytic Practice by Sellers, Ali Rosales, and McDonald. Now, this is one of those articles that will eventually, just by the nature of the content itself, like the specific like points that it makes, um, is, is always really good, but it will be dated by the fact that it is talking about specific ethics codes items, right? So sure. this was 2016, probably written in 2000, like the end of 2014, modified through 2015, because usually it takes a while to get journals approved. Um, and so, so what has likely happened is that um, it was written well before, I mean, almost eight years ago, right? Seven or eight years ago, if you think about yeah. it. So now the thing is, is I think that the content, the actual like, discussions around stuff, super important, super relevant, and will carry over. So what this does, this article does, is it takes the, at the time, section five of the ethics code, the professional uh, code of conduct or whatever it was called, the the PECC is what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that takes the, the specific section items, uh, all those elements, and breaks them down, has a thorough discussion about them, and talks about different interpretations of what that is. Now, again, keep in mind, this is coming from the director of ethics from the board, so probably <laughs> a pretty reliable source. Uh, and so uh, so as you kind of like go through this article, that's really what it focuses on, is these, these specific elements. Uh, it breaks it down, and I'm not going to spend too much time in that minutia. But I do think it is really cool to see the emphasis on supervision, which I feel like, you know, we talk about like, oh, if I say I'm going to supervise somebody, I should, or, you know, um, uh, you know, if, if, if the, if, if I'm supposed to meet these requirements, I'm going to require, you know, stuff like that. Um, I feel like is they're, they're slow hanging fruit as far as the ethics of supervision. But we forget things like the effectiveness. We forget things like terminating supervision. We forget transferring supervision as uh, uh, as other relevant ethics code items. And this gets into kind of all that stuff, which I really, really enjoy. Um, this is something that I just had a discussion with with uh, a, a supervisee of mine recently. Uh, I actually had to use this article because we were talking about the ethics of, of supervision in general. Uh, she was audited. And there was a point in time where she goes, okay, so like, I know in this audit for, cause she was applying for her exam. She's like, I know in this audit, uh, at this point in time, after revisiting all my hours and recalculating, I know that I will not qualify. I understand that. So I'm just not going to respond. And I was like, well, you have to, I was like, and I was like, and so the reason is, is the ethics code were like for BCBAs in general, but for supervision says that when you are in supervision, you are beholden to 
the behavior analyst code, not an RBT code. Yeah. So you're responsible at that level. You're responsible for that. So like I had to kind of go through all that, but this was a really helpful way to orient that. It's like, this is full responsibility. You and I have taken full responsibility for your supervisory experience. I am not going to let you not respond. I'm going to respond whether you do or not. And then you're going to deal with any ramifications, but I'm putting it in writing that I'm telling you that you need to respond. Uh, and she's yeah. like, okay, Shane, I get like, you know, she's <laughs> she being funny about it. But like, it was one of those conversations that was like, this was a really helpful article to have in my back pocket to share with her and be like, look, yeah. you are fully responsible for your supervision experience just as I am. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, you talk about kind of the low hanging fruit of some of that. And I think it's interesting when you, when you do look at, you know, the, the different ethics code and I, you know, some of those are, some of those are a little bit easier to kind of fall back on like uh, supervisory volume, right? Like making mm -hmm. sure you don't have too many and, and, and things like that. And it's kind of the, to me, that kind of, that kind of harkens back to the, you know, the accepting of gifts and not accepting of gifts back in the day that we've always kind of gone back and <laughs> forth on and, and like, Oh, you, you do, or you don't, or you, you know, things like that. But I think it's, it's a lot more nuanced. And so when you get into some of the things like evaluation of supervision and responsibility to the board and, and that kind of stuff, those are, those are obviously just as important as any other piece of the ethics code. But I wonder, I wonder if those are, those are the aspects that are maybe overlooked or just not necessarily as seen as important as the other areas of the code. And I don't necessarily know why that is, but I just, I wonder if you see that because I definitely can see in conversations how those are the, those are the pieces that we don't talk about as much. Um, you know, we talk about like, yeah, you have a responsibility to supervise if you're make sure you have contracts, all that kind of stuff in terms of kind of like the formal relationship. But I wonder if there's a reason that we avoid sometimes some of those other pieces, or maybe we don't avoid it. Maybe that's just my perspective, yeah. but I don't know. I gotcha. I gotcha. Makes sense. I don't know. Interesting. Sometimes. All right. So let's keep moving. So I'm going to go over uh, recommendations for detecting and addressing barriers to successful supervision. Again, we have Tyra Sellers, Linda LeBlanc, and Amber Valentino here. Uh, again, another really cool article. Um, I love, before I go into this, I love that this is an article that's explicitly focused on barriers to successful supervision, like right in yes. there. Um, because those are real. <laughs> we deal yeah. with barriers to successful supervision uh, all the time. and Consistently. Consistently. Uh, and, and on both sides of it, not just the supervisee, but on the supervisor. And there are barriers on, on both sides. And they, they kind of talk about this. But, you know, what they really go into is, is really starting to identify just what the, how we can identify barriers and what we do about it. And one of the things that they really go over before they get into the, the meat of this is to remember to take that functional approach, right? And I think we talk about that a lot when it comes to supervision, but I love the fact that they emphasize this, that we, you know, if you're seeing problems occur, if you're seeing barriers, barriers or if you're seeing problematic behaviors, or if you're not seeing behaviors that you want to see in your supervisee, take that functional approach that we do with any other situation, right? So it's not simply just telling somebody what to do. It's somebody to pause and say, okay, hey, like, why is this happening? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they, they talk about in terms of those problems is that it can come on both sides, which we know, but I love the fact that they explicitly talk about that. They talk about yeah. how, um, you know, it's on the supervisor to make time for that relationship, for those conversations. Um, but they talk about how, um, they talk about these problems in, in three kind of overarching areas. And they talk about disorganization and time management. They talk about interpersonal skills and 
accepting and identifying feedback. And first of all, I love that they talk about accepting and applying feedback in its own area because mm-hmm. we need like that needs to be its whole that needs to be a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, a yeah, whole yeah. Thing. 100%. Um that's a yeah, that's a whole thing. But so they do a really uh, really good job of kind of taking those three areas and talking about some of the potential indicators of those areas. So what behaviors might you see in your supervisee or in yourself as a supervisor that might indicate that those are problems. Uh, So they talk about like retrieving needed materials. They talk about arguing defensive statements, some of those things that are behaviorally indicative of some of these underlying problems. And I love the fact that they give those indicators. And then they also give, and just this really cool table, they give this breakdown of kind of how you might assess and intervene on that issue. And to me, this harkens going right into OBM and talking about the performance diagnostic checklist, because that's what this stuck out to me as, which is Mm -hmm. basically, here's this issue. Is this an issue? Here's how you know it might be an issue. And here are some concrete, explicit things you can do to go address that issue. It doesn't mean they're always going to be successful, but they give you those resources to immediately dive in and start looking at that. And I thought that that was a really clean way to look at some of those things yeah for sure i mean i think i think that's a struggle for people is like i think that it's very easy to uh observe problems right you've got Mm -hmm. a supervisee who's not doing something and it's very easy to put the responsibility back on that supervisee to do better like you know it's very like people tend to do that right you're not doing Mm -hmm. this thing i'm gonna go ahead and do i'm gonna train you more so that you can do this thing because you're not doing what you're supposed to and very rarely is that self-reflective piece at play. And so I do like that they talk about that. Um, and, and again, that's a through line into the book that we're reviewing for season four, mm-hmm. where it specifically talks about at the end of the day, you got to do better with, with self-assessing so that you can ensure that you're doing the right thing by your supervisees and whatnot. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they, there's a whole section in this article that talks about problems can be from the supervisor's side. And I Mm -hmm. think that's a really like it kind of hurts to read that if you're not able to to have that self-reflection, but it's it's really powerful. They talk about relationships. They talk about relationship conflict. And those are things that we really have to have to work through. Like you said, sometimes it's just additional training and and, and supervision. And sometimes sometimes things just aren't meshing and you have to reevaluate what's going to be best for everybody involved. And that's not a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if you don't do anything about it. Right. That's, it's, it's neither good nor bad. It's helpful. And again, you are responsible ethically for being effective. Yes, you are. So yes, you if are. You, as long as you think of it from like a, like an equations, kind of like a, a thought process like that, like you're problem solving. That's essentially what you're doing. You're problem solving how to make it better. And that may include altering some part of the equation that includes your side of the equation as well as their side. So it is, Absolutely. it is a, a, just a, a problem solving to move forward. So Absolutely. Um, all right, before we get into some of the other articles, uh, we have to share our code word to get uh, CEs. This is a supervision CE for this one because we're talking about nothing but supervision. Uh, and so the code word for this one will be, let's see, what have I been watching lately? I'm reading Dune right now. So let's go ahead and say Dune, D-U-N-E, Dune, uh, as in uh, the, the planet Arrakis is a dry, arid place, probably not a great place for supervision. However, if you were on that, that planet, you would want to have a good supervisor uh, to help you, to guide you so that you could walk without rhythm to avoid attracting the Shai Halud. So yeah. I'm like 110 pages in and that's, I'm already like totally sucked into that world. You're already getting into it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There would be some barriers to supervision in that environment, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like if uh, uh, you don't know how to communicate with the Fremen and all that stuff. So anyway, that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. Um, 
Uh, Baron Harkonnen, not a great supervisor. We'll say that. So uh, the next the next article that we um, that is on, on the list, and again, we're just kind of going through um, uh, the the articles in order. The next one is the benefits of group supervision and a recommended structure for implementation by Valentino LeBlanc and Sellers. Now, I'm gonna. I just want to start by saying this. I hated doing group supervision before. Uh, and I hated doing group supervision because I didn't know what I was doing. Like I thought that I was being a good supervisor by, um, by, by teaching. Like I was using group supervision to teach and not to evaluate and to, to kind of observe and to do that. Right. So I was going in going, this is the topic that we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about this. And then if you have questions for me, ask me instead of giving the supervisees an opportunity to interact with one another and consult with one another and kind of bounce ideas of off of one another. Like I, it went from being me teaching, turning it in from a lecture into like an actual group discussion. So, um, and it was largely in part because of this article. So this article focuses on, uh, I feel like group supervision doesn't get enough credit for being as powerful or as effective as it is. It's also been an incredible time saver. I have nine supervisees. If I had, if I had to meet with every single supervisee uh, every single month uh, to, to meet those requirements, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bonkers amount of hours. So what I've done is I've been able to group some of those meetings into singular group supervision and it saved me quite a bit of time. So it went from like 60 something hours a month of supervision at the minimum to something a little bit different. So um, now, uh, this talks about different things you could do. It's, it's good for social networking. Uh, it's good to have multiple listeners. If you're disseminating information, it's a really great space to disseminate information instead of having to repeat yourself over and over and over again. Um, it's, it's really good for, uh, observational learning. I know that I am really uh, somebody who enjoys observational learning. I like sitting back and watching and picking up information and absorbing information. And actually a lot of my experience early on was sitting in like local review committees and listening to how people would treat things like polydipsia and um, excessive water consumption and fecal smearing and rectal digging and all those things. So it was really helpful for me to have an opportunity to do observational learning. And I only did that in a group setting. So um modeling uh and so you have a space to provide and model different examples of how to interact with people um there's the consultation part of it there's the development of professional repertoires there's um different things like that but it specifically talks about how to structure group supervision it gives you a whole lot of ideas and stuff like that there's a nice big table in here that's really nice um but it talks about creating a schedule standardized form um using group supervision for generalization of skills from individual supervision so tying it back to individual so a lot of what i do is if i have a learner that is struggling with some kind of case management situation i'll be like i think you should present that to the group and see if you can get some feedback from everybody. I have some ideas, but I would prefer that you do that. And that's a really cool way. And it gives people the opportunity to publicly present in a safe space, right? That. Because you as a supervisor manage all the contingencies in that group supervision. You're responsible yeah. for that group. So it, it starts to go off the rails that you're responsible for reining it in. You're responsible for providing feedback. You're responsible for modeling. You're responsible for all these things to ensure that it is a safe space for your supervisees. There's no mistakes right? People are going to get feedback and, and you can always kind of encourage people positive feedback, right? Like requests, uh, you can, you can kind of like, um, like requests for information. There's all kinds of different things you could do with that. So, yeah. um, and so I, and so I won't go too much further into it. Um, uh, but I think it is a really valuable tool for orienting to why group supervision is necessary and effective and how to really utilize it in your supervision processes. 
I do love the, um, I love the fact that, and like you said, that it is such a powerful uh, tool. Group supervision is such a powerful tool. And I love the fact that there isn't, there, there's some stuff out there now that talks about how to do it effectively. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah. I'm, I'm with you when I, I used to, to, to run and I, I hated it. And now kind of reflecting back on that, I think that was a big reason why it was because it was kind of disorganized. Well, it was disorganized. It was was not organized <laughs> as well as it could have been. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and you kind of miss some of that structure. So it's, it ends up being aversive for us as the supervisor because mm-hmm. it's, it's, you know, for whatever the reasons. So I love the, I love the fact that that's a conversation now. Yeah. And I love, I just, there was one thing too. I think there's something really important about the idea that you, that you are in a space where you are you like, you know, I don't, I don't let me re, let me backtrack a little bit. I don't know if you've ever had the feeling where you have felt like you are maybe on an Island or that your experience is kind of your own experience. And it's very isolating to be a behavior analyst sometimes. Sure. But like to me, group supervision is really great for connecting people to be like, look, you have a cohort of people with shared experiences. Like, yeah. even if you find no clinical utility out of this, you have at least uh, an interpersonal social networking peer group to connect with that is going to be somebody that you can stay connected with well after you're certified. So I think at the, at the very least, there's a benefit of having a cohort. I love that. Especially nowadays when there's a lot more of this is done through, through distant learning, distance mm-hmm. learning and, and remote supervision and things like that. Yeah. I, I love that. Love that. Exactly. Nice. Cool. Awesome. Um, all right, let's shift. We're moving forward. So the next one we're going to talk about is the apprentice and innovative approach to meet behavior analysis certification board supervision standards uh, by partly Courtney uh, Rossworm and LaMarca. Um, I thought this was a really cool article. Honestly, uh, I, I love the idea. And honestly, I think it's it's something that, that I know at, at our company at PBS now, we kind of do something similar to this. But the uh, the idea that they're that they're talking about is really first identifying the fact that there's a lot of barriers for our students to get really what they need to get right. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's barriers with you know quality of supervision, um, the amount of supervision, inconsistency of of learning opportunities they talk about right where we have some supervisors that provide really good quality. Uh, supervision and supervision opportunities for, for program development assessment. And then, of course, there are, you know, other times where supervisees get, you know, hundreds of hours simply just graphing or something like that, right? And obviously necessary, but not, not to that level. Um, mm-hmm. They talk about opportunities to collect, they talk about indirect hours, but unrestricted uh, hours and supervision hours, right? We always talk about students and how we're trying to give them more of those hours, especially now that they need to have even more than they did uh, a few years ago. And obviously there's barriers to doing that, right? And that's not just busy work, that is quality stuff that you should do that a BCBA would do, not laminating and, and uh, you know, things like <laughs> right. that. Uh, so we do love, I mean- Listening listen, to podcasts. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> listen, I'm, uh, yeah. Uh, I, I, for, <laughs> I, for one, am, am, am horrible at laminating something and then cutting it, right? The lines are always messed up and the, and the laminator comes off so potentially maybe that was something I should have had more more experience with in uh-huh. my supervision but um you know it's a real thing uh but anyway so they, they talk about all of these different barriers and so the model that they that they start to propose is this apprenticeship apprenticeship model and and for for me kind of contrast that to our PBS folks is something along the lines of like a student analyst role and really but what this is looking at is you know it's 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 providing those opportunities for a student who is still underneath the BCBA moving forward with that training, but not actually certified yet 
but that person kind of serves as an intermediary to support other, other students. So in their model, they talk about that person being more of an autism expert, and that's just because mm-hmm. of the organization that they're, that they're talking about, which is fine. Um, but that person really serves as that intermediary where the BCBA can you know, help that uh, apprentice right, take on some of these additional opportunities that they would need to be able to do as a future supervisor, like conducting assessments, but also take on some of that additional uh, leadership and supervision responsibility, like being able to train others. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, obviously, we're doing that within the realm of what's appropriate and, and scope and things like that. But they really start to build this they build this tiered approach of supervision that allows for the supervisor to be more effective to a larger group of individuals um, while still ensuring that there's quality. And it also starts to build up folks that are uh, beneath the BCBA as they're working towards that to have those opportunities. Because I mean, they talk about how how often do we see somebody become a BCBA and they've, they've done assessments, they've written programs, they've done all these things, but they're not great at, you know, dealing with conflict, right. Or dealing Mm -hmm. with a supervisee that disagrees with them or pushes back things like that. And that's obviously a huge part of this. So this model really allows for that additional training and additional experience. So I thought it was a really cool way of, of kind of having that tiered approach that gives everybody a good quality um, good quality supervision and they structure it oh, really yeah. well in terms of hours and years and, and how far along you are in your coursework. Yeah, I, uh, I agree. And, uh, if you ever get a chance to see Vince Lamarca present, um, he is one of the best ignite presenters I've ever seen in my life. Um, and so it's definitely worth seeing anything that he works on because he does some really great work and it's just a super cool dude. So like, uh, spend some time looking at his stuff. Cause he does, he does, he, he does a lot of really cool things. Awesome. All right. So the last article that's part of the special edition, uh, the special section on supervision is uh, is called an evaluation of the impact of supervision intensity, supervisor qualifications and caseload on outcomes in the treatment of autism spectrum disorder. Um, And that is there are a lot of there's a lot of authors on this. So it's uh, Dixon et al. We'll say Um, there are one, two, three, four, like nine authors on this. So we'll say Dixon et al. Um, I actually really like this because I think this this comes from and this was actually an experiment um, that was done. And so I, I really liked this one because I do think it's necessary when people start to evaluate supervision in their supervisory practices that they evaluate the actual dosage of supervision. Right. So so people are like, oh, yes, you only need six and a half hours a month instead of being like, actually, you need a lot more um, because what you're doing is not good. Uh, and so, uh, so there is kind of a, a need to really evaluate how much supervision somebody has, and it should be individualized, right? We individualize our treatment recommendations for our learners. We should be individualizing our supervision recommendations for our supervisees for, for a lot of reasons, for a number of reasons. So this article was great. Um, and it shows some really cool things. Basically the findings were, and I'll keep this nice and simple. Cause I don't want to get into like the, the, uh, it actually has like the, 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 <laughs> the, uh, the, the equation for slope in here, uh, Y equals MX plus B. And you're like, Ugh! I thought I was done with that. Um, and Never. so, uh, yeah, so Never. what, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. So basically what they found in the simplest way to describe this is that they discovered that supervision outcomes were typically better with more supervision. So uh, that's like the entire article. The entire article says, you know, um, caseloads can have an impact. Preferences can have an impact. Supervisor qualifications can have an impact. All of those things can, can impact the supervisor experience. But the, the main thing that is um, really effective in supporting supervisee growth is ensuring they have enough 
supervision. And what they found is they had better treatment outcomes or better supervision outcomes with the, with folks that had a greater amount of supervision in their experience. So just a thought, as you think about supervision, if you want to have really good supervision, you should think about doing it more often. <laughs> seems, so, seems reasonable. Yeah. So I think that's, I think that's fair. So I, what I really liked again, so the special section talks about what our ethical obligations are, what we're supposed to be doing, what supervision looks like, group supervision, figuring out barriers and all that stuff, and then what your recommendation for supervision should be so that you can do it effectively because, again, that is your ethical responsibility. So that that actually concludes the entire special section of supervision, um, which I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did this. One thing I really like, though, is they do some other experiments and some other articles. Yeah, they tossed a couple of extra in there. Yeah. Um yeah, which which I I, I do love. Uh, I agree. It was awesome to go over all the supervision stuff, and then it's nice to have a, a little bit of a, a shift at the end to, to, mm -hmm. to talk mm -hmm. a little bit more. Um, yeah, uh, especially now that you have all that supervision, you know, kind of background and discussion, because now you can kind of recontextualize some of the new, some of the other articles underneath that. So yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so I'm going to go over quickly. Uh, it's uh, Justin Leaf and, and his team. It's evaluation of positional prompts for teaching receptive identification to individuals diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, and, and so basically what we're, what we're talking about here are different types of prompts in terms of uh, 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 intrusiveness of prompts. And, you know, one of the I personally love a, a good positional prompt, <laughs> but basically <laughs> what they were, what they're showing is, you know, what they're talking about here in terms of receptive identification is not a, an extra stimulus prompt. You're not adding anything in. You're simply changing the location or the position of the stimuli in front of the learners. So for example, if you have a red card, a green card, and a blue card, and the learner needs to uh, touch the blue card, right? The blue card is going to get moved a little bit closer to the learner, right? And the other two cards are going to be a little bit further away. So you're just changing the position of that one stimulus. And ultimately, what's controlling responding is the position of that stimulus, not necessarily the stimulus, the color blue itself. Yeah. So basically what you do is over time, right, as the learner is successfully uh, tapping or touching receptive ID, that that color, then you slowly move the stimuli away. So now all the stimuli in front of the individual are equidistant, right? So they're, they're all you know, the same distance away from the learner. Um, and so, you know, they, they were showing that that's an incredibly effective way to teach uh, receptive identification. And, and I can tell you anecdotally, it, it is, I've done it myself. And I just, I love, I love that concept because it's a pretty easy thing to do. It doesn't, like I said, it's not an extra stimulus prompt. It doesn't require you to bring anything else into the environment. It doesn't require you to add anything in and then fade something you can do fade, but you're not, you're not changing the natural environment such that you're bringing in stuff, right. That's going to make it right. more intrusive. You simply just shift the position of certain stimuli. So I love the I love the concept. I love the idea, and I love the fact that not only is it effective, but it's also a really socially valid way to uh, do that type of instruction because it doesn't require anything additional from either you or the environment. So yeah, no, I love that positional prompts. They rule. So they rule. That should have been the name of the article. We should give them feedback. Yeah, I can. Yeah, uh, you can give them feedback. So. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, I'll give you that. It's fine. Uh, so the next article that is in the list is uh, a comparison of descriptive and functional analyses of inappropriate mealtime behavior by um, Barrero et al. Um, so it's uh, Barrero, England, uh, Sarcia, and Woods. So <clears throat> I am not a professed uh, feeding expert. So uh, mealtime behavior, all that stuff, 
is a, a foreign area for me. So I do enjoy reading about this. What this, this article was really interesting because the argument is typically that a descriptive analysis is not as um, accurate as a functional analysis, right? Uh, so, so what they found is that descriptive analyses tend to, you, you know, your general FBA procedures tend to be uh, a lot less accurate by, I think they said something like almost like 40 to 60%, something like there's something like where it's like kind of wildly off, but what they found here, which I thought was really interesting was that descriptive assessments can actually be really effective for mealtime behavior and assessing mealtime behavior without having to do a functional analysis. Now, what they found were some inconsistencies. They found that with the escape condition, the attention condition, they're, it's usually pretty accurate. With the tangible condition and the tangible function, that's a little less accurate. So it's not as consistent as possible. But what they did was they compared descriptive assessment results with functional analysis results and found that descriptive descriptive analyses for mealtime behaviors, specifically inappropriate mealtime behaviors, can actually be pretty effective and can be pretty useful for assessors. And that's pretty much the whole study. Uh, yeah, that, that gives me a different perspective. I, 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 when we, uh, you know, we talk about descriptive assessment a lot in terms of uh, correlation versus causation, some of those, uh, you know, attention is a, is what the, the, the consequence that follows problem behavior 100% of the time, but not always relevant. Um, yeah. So I like the, uh, so yeah, I like, I like the, I like the way that they approach that in a different perspective. Yeah, I would also like to note that uh, some of the names I can't remember if they use pseudonyms or not, but some of the names are really interesting. So they're the, the names of the participants are uh, Barnaby is one of them. Barnaby is the name. Uh, Enzo, Carity. So just interesting name. Um, I was really kind of uh, intrigued by that. Interesting. I've never met anybody named Barnaby, so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah. No, not either. <laughs> you have to think about that for a second? I have to think. It's possible, but I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, I like it. Uh, awesome. So I'm going to go on and talk about evaluating the high probability instructional sequence to increase acceptance of food with an adolescent with autism. Uh, Yuri and Freiling put this one together. Uh, pretty, pretty simple uh, kind of idea. Again, using the high probability uh, request sequence behavioral momentum to increase acceptance of low probability foods. Uh, basically what they did was they set up a condition where they presented three bites of a high, uh, highly preferred uh, food item. And I don't remember what the food actually was. I had to find that. Uh, but so three uh, presentations of the high probability food followed by the low probability food. And they saw that it actually led to an increase in the low probability food uh, down the road. So it was a pretty easy uh, intervention. They were able to impl uh, they were able to generalize that to parent implementation. The parent was also able to uh, run that continuously uh, with a task analysis that the team had put together. So it was a really cool way to, to increase that acceptance. Uh, some of the stuff that they talked about at the end, which I think was I think was uh, pretty interesting just to bring up. Um, they kind of tied to what you're talking about, Shane. There was no inappropriate mealtime behavior, right? So there mm -hmm. was nothing, there were no barriers there. Uh, so what we're talking about here, really, whether this would be effective for a, you know, a child or somebody who was engaging in other problematic behaviors, such as 
expulsion food or things like that, we don't necessarily know. So that would be interesting to look at uh, in the future. And one of the things that I think is just really powerful in, in, in this study is that they do make the statement about um, uh, oral motor skills and, and the ability to chew and swallow and things like that. And so what they talk about is, is obviously that this procedure was effective but what is necessary prior to doing that is to make sure that the oral motor musculature and everything else is, um, is working the way it should, right? Is within normal limits. If you have issues with swallowing, if you have issues with chewing or, um, or things like that, then you're going to, you know, obviously run into a barrier with this. So while this is effective, I think the big, the big thing that I got that takeaway from is that we need to pause and make sure that those medical pieces, those physiological, um, pieces are in place that's yeah. not physiological that's probably not the right word but you know, yeah right. yeah no i get what you're saying i actually really uh one of my favorite things about research is like there's and this is this is kind of the the weird fallacy of research right or the weird kind of conundrum with research is so many times we can't just be like well my gut tells me or my anecdotes tell me that this <laughs> is the truth right but then yeah. when you like do a study and it's like yeah that's what it that's what it was like of course this is what it is um of course this is how this works it's always really funny that uh like a study will confirm what your gut reaction is or like what mm -hmm. your logic will tell you um and and i and I don't, I don't know what that phenomenon is so i'm i this is like a gap in my knowledge but there's there's, all, there's so many times where I've been like, well, of course that's what it, that of course that's what happens when this is what you do. Um, you know, of course supervision is better with more <laughs> supervision, right? Like, yeah. of course that you, you know these other things can't happen without medical rule out. Um, but I do really enjoy when that happens because you're kind of like, if it's yeah, you kind of have like a mixed. I have a mixed emotion. I feel like, well, that was a waste of time to do that study, but also it's nice to confirm what I believe to begin with, right? So, like, it's kind of like this weird. I don't know if you have that experience, but I kind of I do that a lot. No, I, I definitely do. I definitely do because <laughs> I, because I think it's one of those things that like I, we we it's in our code. It's in our it's how we do those things. Like we're supposed to do those things, but I think a lot of times we do just overlook it. We say, okay, there's there's a problem. Here's assess and intervene and and go do it. So it is kind of I think it is meaningful for to read those and to have that kind of pause. Like, oh yeah, okay, that's that's right. We need to look at that first, or uh, yeah, we need to to focus on that first. So I think it's. I agree whether the study is, is, you know, fully necessary or whatever. It's a, a question for another day, but I do, I do agree with you. I like when they add those additional components that kind of like remind us where we need to go. Keep right. us grounded. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so the next article, uh, we've only got a couple more folks. So thanks for bearing with us. The next one is uh, from Aldi et al. And it is examining the effects of video modeling and prompts to teach activities of daily living skills. I love uh, video modeling research. I think it's really fascinating um, and, and super powerful stuff. Uh, what this found was that learners were able to learn basic um, uh, daily living skills. They, they worked with some adult learners uh, that have autism. And so they, uh, they collected baseline data and across all the three learners or all the, the, both of the learners, I should say the two participants, they had zero skills in these areas. Participant one was taught to make tortellini, set the table and fold their jeans. Uh, participant two was taught to set the table, clean the counter and sink and clean the mirror in their home. Um, and so they did a multiple baseline, uh, a multiple baseline across behaviors for these learners. They had very short baselines for each one and they like each three data points for each one. Uh, so that's, that's all they had, but they found that the video modeling was super effective and it was really helpful and it increased the behavior pretty rapidly. And then they found that the behavior dropped off pretty rapidly 
in the maintenance phase. Not by much. Uh, participant one actually maintained pretty well. Not great, not perfect. Um, but the second participant dropped off quite a bit, especially for cleaning the mirror and cleaning the counter and sink. Um, they, they really lost those skills. So there's some interesting stuff there, but they were able to teach the skill up. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to maintain it. Um, and some things they tested too, and some things they discussed were video modeling where it was either third person or first person point of view. Mm -hmm. um, so third person being you're observing the person doing it and first person being that you're seeing it from your own eyes. Uh, and so that was kind of a cool evaluation that I don't remember reading or recalling in the video modeling research, but I think I'm sure it's there. It's just that I have not caught that just yet. So, um, so anyway, video modeling super effective and, and really great for, for autistic learners who are able to attend a video uh, and learn through observational learning. I love it, I love it. Yeah, I, I wonder the, the mechanism that, uh, that there was minimal maintenance for, uh, for one of the one of the participants. Yeah, the second participant. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah, huh. all right. Um, Okay. I do love when articles discuss that, by the way, because I think it's yeah. important for us to recognize as, as practitioners that, you know, yeah, this looks good and, and we can use this, but they're, but maintenance generalization is a huge piece of that. So I like when articles discuss yeah. that, whether, it, whether it happened or it didn't happen, I think it's important. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we're moving on. So a review and treatment selection model for individuals with developmental disabilities who engage in inappropriate sexual behavior. This is, uh, we're going to go with Tanya Davis <laughs> at all. Uh, uh -huh. Also a, a pretty decent group. Um, and I'm actually going to gonna shift and, and kind of throw this over at you, Shane, being the resident expert in uh, sexual behavior and uh, kind of get your perspective. <laughs> this is a great article. I, I think everybody should read this one. If you are, if you're interested in working in sexual behavior, you need this one. Um, this is a required reading, I think, for anybody working in sexual behavior because it outlines, it's like essentially kind of a, it reviews, all, it's not a meta analysis, but it reviews all the different types of interventions that have been found in behavior analytic research about treating inappropriate appropriate sexual behavior. Um, and some of it is uh, not great um, as far as like the different things that were done, but it is an article that I often reference. There was an update in Java recently that's not nearly as good as this one. So um, so I, I think this one is uh, far more comprehensive and a little bit more nuanced as far as the discussion. Uh, it talks about different you know, differential reinforcement, different types of differential reinforcement, extinction. It talks about um, punishment procedures. It talks about all those different things and how, what kind of impact they've had on inappropriate sexual behavior specifically. Uh, and, they, and they talk about too, like, you know, um, there's, they're all function-based. So it's not just assuming that everybody is just doing it to get off, but it's, I think this is a really great example of understanding and kind of dispelling some myths around sexual behavior. Love it. I love it. Yeah, I thought, I mean, I thought it was a really interesting read. I have nothing else to add beyond that. Um, this is obviously your, your jam. And I thought it was interesting that I got assigned it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was, you got assigned it by accident. We realized we randomized the articles and then Patrick got the one that was in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't, so. it didn't really fit, but, uh, but no, I, I, yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I, I don't have anywhere near the experience that, that you do with this. I've worked with some um, individuals, uh, some adolescent males, masturbation, some of that stuff um, in public. So there was, there's some interventions here that really kind of, kind of stuck out, but um, yeah, it was a really, it was a really interesting read and I like that they added it in. I think it is a cool article to talk about the context of supervision as well, especially when you get into scope and uh, yeah. you know, medical variables and all that kind of stuff. That's not, I don't think that was the goal of kind of including it here, but I, I, I did kind of make that connection as, as I was reading it too. Yeah, no, so good. I love it. 
Um, so the next article I had, this is the last article I had, was social thinking methodology, evidence-based or empirically supported, a response to Leaf et al. in 2016. Now, here's what I'm going to say about this before I get into this article. I really love, really, really love when there are response articles. I love when discussions can play out in a peer-reviewed journal and they can play out in the public eye because I think that it removes the non-professionalism for the most part. I think it removes some of the animosity, and I think it's simply just a discussion among people who are educated people who are trying to understand the nuance of this. So this article is a response to Leaf et al., which basically says that social thinking methodology is not evidence-based. Okay. Um, And these folks are like, wait a second, here's, and they give some, some insight on different articles and stuff like that. Uh, And they, and they share some, some specific responses to their arguments and all that. Uh, I believe if I'm not mistaken, Leaf at all um, did provide a response to the response. So this does play out a little bit further. Uh, and so essentially what this is, is just, again, it's just a response article. It's um, specifically looking at and picking apart, hey, this, this article came out, here's my response to this article, da 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 and then it goes back and forth. Now, I don't know anything about social thinking methodology, and this is something I was kind of going into it like, I don't know about this. Um, after looking into it, um, officially, officially, there is evidence. So here's what it is. And, and this is the way it's described. It's described as social thinking methodology is applied upon already existing interventions. Like it's kind of a framework. It provides like a context, almost like uh, social stories, right? Huh? That's okay. kind of the kind of the thing. Um, and if you're familiar with uh, uh, Leaf's work in this area, um, he, it's almost like a crusade against social stories, which I'm fine with because social stories don't work. Uh, and so I, and I, I will die on that hill because there is research to show that it does not. Uh, however, the social thinking methodology, they go in and say, well, it's supposed to be applied up on top of um, uh, these interventions and stuff like that. I did a little bit of digging. I couldn't find a lot of, of, of research to support this. There's, so the argument that they're making is there's evidence for it. There's evidence that it could work. And they share some evidences that say, this is what it could work. I did not read those articles. I imagine that the mechanism by which this does work is probably not quite what they think it is or what people think it does. Uh, It's more of a CBD, CBT approach from what I, from what I'm reading. However, by definition from the, what works catalog and all that stuff, the, what works warehouse, it is not evidence-based. So it is interesting to see kind of the definitions of what this is and kind of how this play out. Like I said, I respect that it's in here and I really do enjoy it. And I think it is still worth a read. Uh, and it's worth a read to see how response papers play out in the public eye or into in the, in the science community. Um, but yeah, it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly about, about that stuff playing out in, in public. Um, I mean, we, you know, psychology, the replication issue, all that kind of stuff that's been going on uh, in general. I think that just speaks to the fact that we need to make sure our stuff is transparent and discussed um, with, you know, in, in within the, the context of our consumers so they can see what we're doing and why we're doing it. Um, I like the, it, it, we don't have time to get into this, but I, I do like the, the discussion on kind of evidence and, and what we're considering, like what is evidence, right? So mm-hmm. it, obviously what works clearinghouse, things like that, there are those, there are those places that have looked in, in rigorous studies and, 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 you know, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said about, you know, uh, evidence that something does not work, uh, no evidence that something does work, emerging evidence, Mm-hmm. Um, fad treatments versus pseudoscience versus evidence-based practices, right? And some, 
you know, like there's been some discussion that some of our, our interventions and things in behavior analysis are fads. And that's not because that they're bad. It's because the, they're kind of, the application of their use has kind of not kept up with the, the research. Right. So they right. have one kind of going beyond the other. So I, I think there's, a, I think there's some interesting conversations about that and kind of where you look for evidence and what you consider evidence-based practice. If you're the, I think it's Tristan Smith that talks about like the decision-making kind of model versus, um, is it leaf? I don't remember the other, the other, um, the other guys that talk about evidence-based practice is kind of like a manual, like a set of things, right? And those are two yeah. very different definitions of what an evidence-based practice is. And if you look at the same thing in those two different contexts, you might come to a different conclusion. And I think that's, I don't think that's bad for science, but I think it could be difficult for our consumers to understand a little bit or make it difficult yeah. for us to really use our science in a bigger picture. Well, and I think that's, I think that's part of it too, is like the discussions prompt, like the questions of like, well, what does evidence-based mean? And mm -hmm. what does evidence mean? And just because there's evidence doesn't mean it's evidence-based, mm -hmm. right? So like, there's like, there's all that stuff to kind of unpack within that. And I like that they're doing it. I like that mm -hmm. there is a response. I like that there are challenges to that stuff. And I think just for the same reason, I like the, the, the Cox article on ethics versus the Bailey article mm -hmm. on ethics and how they are discussing this in the open space. Mm -hmm. um, it's not that either one is right or wrong. Uh, I think in this situation, they are uh, like, they're like, they're like, it is, it is clear that it's not evidence-based, but there is yeah. evidence to support that it could work. Um, I think there is a difference there. And, and really what Leaf was yeah. saying was like, it doesn't like this social thinking methodology does not fit within a behavior analytic model. Like that's all it is. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's not evidence-based and it doesn't fit within a behavior analytic model. So behavior analysts shouldn't be able to use it. That's all. That's, that's really what the argument was. And they yeah. were like, wait a second. Um, and, and they make a good argument. They clearly it was published and it was a professional response. So clearly it's there. It's a good argument. Um, and it really comes down to theoretical orientation and, and, and really what you think of it and, and as well as like what definitions you buy into. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, just us as scientists in general, like that's, we, you know, determinism, philosophic doubt, right. Healthy dose skepticism. That's the kind of stuff that we should, we should have, right. Just because we see something doesn't mean we're immediately going to, going to take it and say, yes, that's exactly true. Right. We're going to have that healthy dose of skepticism, but uh, mm -hmm. is it Sagan? Sagan says, don't keep your, your brain so, or your head so open that your brains fall out or something like that. Uh -huh, yeah, exactly. yeah. But, but that idea, and I think that's, I, I think that's good. I think that's what we should have as long as that can play out, like you said, in a professional public way where we can really talk about what we're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So there's one more article, right? There's one more article. I didn't read it. Did you? Read it? <laughs> I didn't read it either. Uh, and I don't know why neither of us read it. I think I it was, uh, I, I don't know. So uh, it we'll was have a to book. revisit that one. Yeah, I think it was, it was a, a book, book review. review. Yeah. So okay. maybe we'll get the book and talk about it in the future. Yeah, that's probably what it was. It's like with the whole the whole show is a book review. So like, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, and we may get to that. I, I typically I typically try to avoid book reviews. Um, I, I'll reference them. I'll skim them a little bit, but I typically avoid them because um, they are uh, I, I like to kind of form my own opinion about a book. Uh, yeah. And so so, you know, like right like at first, you know, like I mentioned before, I'm reading Dune right now. Uh, yeah. The first like 20 or 30 pages, I was kind of like nodding off. And then now I'm like, wait a second this is actually really good uh and so uh so and it's beautifully written so like i kind of like i'm the kind of person that will make their own my own judgment about a book but yeah no i think that's fair i think a book review is good just like uh any other article it can give you some some resources some potential books to look into maybe mm -hmm. you know expand your knowledge but i but i agree that it's a yeah i agree with that 
Yeah, very good. Well, awesome. that concludes this episode about uh, this special edition of Supervision, uh, the, the, the BAP, the Behavior Analysis and Practice Journal that covers that. Um, I, again, really love really love special sections, um, and I think we should probably do more of them. Uh, I think it'll be really fun to do an instructional design one eventually, mm -hmm. but uh, that stuff is uh, is not as uh, <laughs> uh, not as interesting for some folks, we'll say. Um, so with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and do our last code word. Um, our last code word will be Paul, P-A-U-L, as in Paul Atreides. Um, the Duke, uh, the Duke inherent of, um, of Atreides and uh, of House Atreides and eventual God Emperor of the Dune universe. So Love it. should we be yeah. expecting a, an increase in the rate of your uh, usage of Dune terminology in the next couple of weeks? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, uh, 100% uh, awesome. for sure. Uh, between the Fremen and the uh, Sarda, Sardacon and uh, all the uh, all the all the things that come up. Um, yeah, nice, for sure. Nice. Get ready. So your baseline was zero and you're already at like 100 an hour. So we're moving. Oh, uh -huh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Moving yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I learn skills rapidly. I'm a rapid learner. So <laughs> Well, thank you all for being here. We do have some additional episodes that are going to come up during uh, season three. We are preparing for season four. That should be coming soon. We think that you all will enjoy it. Uh, and we do have uh, some additional surprises and stuff that are going to come up as we kind of like learn the format of the, the show and all that stuff. So thank you all for being here. Happy supervision. I have been one of your hosts, Shane. I'm your other host, Patrick. And we'll Thanks see you coming. on another time. <laughs>